Staying close to Jesus enables us to resist the world's pressures. When we trust ourselves, we ignore God's word and we inevitably fail when we're tested. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 18, John 18, beginning at verse 12. Uh, Jesus has finished his farewell discourse just by way of chronology in the upper room with his disciples. That was John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, the great high priestly prayer. They've walked out of the uh, upper room. They've walked uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And two weeks ago, we went through the process of how Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Today, we're going to look at verses 12 to 27, and John is going to contrast and describe the trial of Jesus and the denial of Peter. So he's clearly contrasting Peter's behavior, the courage of Christ, and the cowardice of Peter side by side. He describes scenes of Jesus being questioned inside the high priest's home and Peter being questioned outside the high priest's courtyard. It's kind of like Downton Abbey, you know, you have scenes that take place upstairs with the family and downstairs with the servants, and there are two different worlds, if you will. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, notes, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. So John really is highlighting an alternative verses here between 12 and 27, the trial of Jesus and how he responded to external pressure, and the denial of Peter and how he responded to external pressure. So let's take a look at scene one, beginning in verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Here's our first principle. God allowed evil people to slay Jesus in order to accomplish his eternal plan to save people from their sin. God allowed evil people to slay Jesus in order to accomplish his eternal plan to save people from their sin. As we talked about last week, these words have meaning. If we take the text apart, a cohort is normally 600 soldiers. And the word here... Uh, Manipul really means about 200 soldiers. So they came with about 200 soldiers to the garden. The Greek word for commander, by the way, is chilidarchos, and it means a Roman officer who was in charge of a thousand soldiers. So obviously Caiaphas has talked to Rome and said, we need some serious muscle when we're going to arrest Jesus. Number one, this guy can do miracles. And number two, we think the Jewish crowds might come out and create a riot, so you better bring some serious troop source and troop count here. So we've got somewhere 200 to 600 Roman 
soldiers, and we also have a slug of the temple police. When they say officers of the Jews, they're talking about the light Levites who are responsible for law and order, if you will, the security and sanctity of the Jewish complex. So there's quite a big number of crowds here to try and make sure Jesus wouldn't escape and also to put down uh, any riot the Jewish uh, nationals would have to support Jesus. He was pretty popular. What's ironic, we talked about last, two weeks ago, that when Jesus said, I am, the force of his eternal personality knocked them flat. They literally all fell down. What's amazing to me is that they all got up, number one, and number two, that they arrested him and bound him. So it's really remarkable that you think the Son of God can be stalled and restrained and arrested by ropes. I imagine they bound him in ropes. The reality is humans can never restrain God, right? Unless God chooses to be restrained. So throughout John's depiction of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of our Lord, you will always see Jesus sovereignly controlling every aspect of his own execution. It was planned from eternity past, and it's happening precisely as he and his father designed it in eternity past. Now, Jesus is going to experience two trials, one religious trial and one civil trial. The, the Jews are going to conduct the religious trial. The Romans are going to conduct the civic trial. Now, the reason that took place is the Jews could not condemn anyone to death. Actually, they could condemn them. They just couldn't carry out the execution. The Romans had removed the right to enforce capital punishment from the Jews a number of years before. So the Jews didn't have the right to execute anybody legally. They stoned Stephen, but that was mob action. That was not a judicial action. Uh, that's why they had to bring Jesus before the Roman governor, Pilate, which we're going to take a look at next week in detail. They had to have Rome sign off on the execution of Jesus, and the Jewish religious leaders wanted Rome to do the deed, so they didn't have to take responsibility for it. We're going to take a look at that in great detail. So each of these two trials have three separate hearings. So there's six complete hearings in Jesus' trial. Jesus had a religious trial before Annas, number one, before Caiaphas, number two, and before the Sanhedrin, number three. We're going to take a look at one of those today. The Jews tried and condemned Jesus for blasphemy. He was a man who claimed to be God, and according to the Levitical law, that was capital crime, a human being claiming to be God. So that was the major beef they had with him, and they were going to execute him on that basis. Uh, Jesus' civil trial also had three separate hearings. One before uh, Pilate, the second before Herod, and the third back to Pilate. We're going to take a look at those next week as well. Now, blasphemy was not a capital crime to the Romans. That was a religious issue. So the fact that the Jews had a beef with Jesus claiming to be God meant nothing to the Romans. So the Jews had to persuade Pilate that Jesus was guilty of sedition. He was guilty of claiming to be a political king who would, who would uh, be a threat to Caesar. At the time this took place, the religious life of Israel and the political life of Israel, they had two major political parties, right? Like we have two major political parties. It was as ugly then as it is now. We had the Pharisees and we had the Sadducees. Take your pick, right? Right? 
The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They believed everything the Old Testament said. They followed it to the letter, and they added hundreds of man-made laws on top of the Mosaic law. They were the legalists. They hated Roman policies, and they hated the Roman occupation. They hated Jesus because he claimed to be God. And they believed the Old Testament taught there is only one God, and it does. And they said, if there's only one God, then who are you? You must be a polytheist because you are claimed to be God, and the Old Testament says there's only one God, you're an imposter, we're going to kill you. That was the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees, they were the religious and political liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in an immortal soul, they didn't believe in an afterlife, they didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. The Pharisees accepted the entire Old Testament canon. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books written by Moses. Everything else was irrelevant to them. The Pharisees hated Rome, and the, I mean the Pharisees hated Rome, but the Sadducees compromised with Rome. They said, we're going to do a deal with the devil because Rome gives us a great deal of position and prestige and power and wealth. The, religion, the Pharisees were, by and large, small business owners, not very powerful. The Sadducees were extremely wealthy. They were the upper crust of the day. They ran the Jewish society. So the text says that the soldiers first lead Jesus to the residence of the former high priest named Annas. He was a Sadducee. He was part of the wealthy elite. He wasn't the current high priest, but the Jewish nation still regarded him as the legitimate high priest. You know, he was called high priest in the same way that we call a former president of the United States president, right? Even though their term is, is over, they're no longer in office, we still refer to them as President Carter, President Reagan, etc. Now, under the Mosaic Law, the high priest term was a lifetime appointment, and you inherited it from your father. Your father was the high priest, you became the high priest upon your father's death, and you were the high priest until you died. Annas served in that capacity uh, from AD 6 to 15, and he was deposed in AD 15 by the Roman procurator Valerius Gratus. Valerius was the predecessor to Pontius Pilate. So the predecessor to Pontius Pilate fired Annas and put his son Eleazar in place, and Eleazar was high priest from AD 16 to 17, and following Eleazar comes Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas. Caiaphas became the high priest in AD 18, and he kept that office until AD 36. So he was in office for 18 years. And he was the high priest during the ministry phase of Jesus on earth. All told, five of Annas' sons, his son-in-law, and his grandson all retained the office of high priest. Now, you have to understand that clearly Annas was a political animal. He had a lot of influence with Rome in order to keep this priestly dynasty in his bloodline. So even though the individual holding the office would change and could be taken out by Rome, the priestly dynasty kept in Annas' family. So the Jewish nation saw Annas as the legitimate high priest, and he had just been removed by these Romans. And the Romans removed high priests pretty regularly because they were very sensitive to anybody in Jewish society gathering and controlling too much power. The high priest was the most powerful person in Jewish society. They had religious authority, political authority. 
And Rome was very concerned that anybody who retained that position for life as high priest would exercise a tremendous amount of influence on the religion and politics of Israel. So Rome appointed high priests and deposed them regularly. And they didn't do it for religious reasons, they did it for political reasons. They wanted a high priest who was subservient to Rome. They wanted a high priest that would counsel and teach the people to submit to Roman rule and not riot and not move against it. And Annas was an absolute political operator. Remember, the position of high priest in Israel was primarily that of a mediator. Priest means mediator. A priest is someone who speaks to God for the people, right? The priest offers sacrifices for the sins of the people. So the priest is the mediator, the go-between, who reconciles God and man's relationship through the sacrificial system. That was the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, obviously, is the ultimate high priest because he laid down his own life once for all, the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us to God. Now, the Mosaic Law had a very specific set of holy, living behaviors that the high priest had to follow. So it just wasn't you had this position, it was inherited, and you had to live a moral code, a holy life, as God had specified in the Old Testament. At this point, the position of high priest had none of that. It was a political position, it was a commercial position, it was all about power politics. The Jews celebrated three annual feasts a year. All of them involved going to Jerusalem and offering animal sacrifices because the essence of Jewish religion was the sacrificial system. You became right with God by offering sacrifices for your sins. And God had specified you had to bring perfect animals to sacrifice. God said, I want you to value me enough to give me your best animals, not the discards. So as a result of that, the office of the high priest had to inspect every animal you brought. So if you were in Israel or outside of Israel and you were going to come and you were going to worship the Lord in one of these three feasts, you always brought an animal sacrifice. You brought a lamb, and that lamb had to be without blemish, right? And who were the group of people that inspected the lamb to see if it was good enough? That was the temple officials that worked for Annas. And most of the time, they would find something wrong with your animal and say it doesn't pass muster, it's got a scar here, or we don't like it, etc. You have to buy one of our animals, right, here in the temple stockyards, and it's officially approved, and we'll be glad to sell it to you at X markup. This is retail times two. There ain't no discounts here at Annas' stockyards. I mean, it's a serious scam. There were likely way over 100,000 animals a year sold in the temple stockyards to worshipers. That was a significant source of profit for Annas, and he lived in the best part of town, the upper city, and he was a greedy, ambitious, corrupt individual. As a matter of fact, the temple courtyards were called the bazaars of Annas. That's like the mall of Annas at the temple. It was a business deal. It was a religious scam. Not only have to bring a perfect animal when you worshiped, you also once you had to bring an annual temple tax. That was coin. And you could only bring a Jewish shekel or a half shekel. Now, if you were a pilgrim that you came outside the country and you didn't have local currency, 
Annas had money changers available for you right there at the temple, and they'd be glad to change your money for you. If you've ever done that on airlines or, or you know, you go to a foreign country, there's always a commish, right, on the markup, the spread, the difference between buy and sell, and that they were glad to change money at exorbitant rates. So it was another set of profit for Annas and his family. Now I think you understand a little bit why Annas and his family were so enraged when Jesus went into the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end, and broke up their scam. He overturned the money changers' table. He got a set of whips. He drove the animals out. He drove all the stockyards out. He cleaned the temple up. That was their profit center. He said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a what? Den of robbers, right? And that was costing Annas money, and he wanted Jesus dead for lots of reasons. One of them was commercial. So the Jewish religious leaders had a very cozy relationship with Rome, and that was kind of revealed during a conference they had among themselves after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In John 11, it says the chief priests, by the way, anytime you see the word chief priests in Scripture, that's Sadducees. Chief priests are Sadducees, religious liberals in bed with Rome, very wealthy. The chief priests and the Pharisees, both parties now, are together. They convened a council. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man, Jesus is performing many signs. Well, yeah, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty, that's an outstanding sign. 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The point here is God uses evil people, both political parties. By the way, God uses both political parties today as well just like he used both political parties then to accomplish his good purpose. Caiaphas is arranging for Jesus' murder to preserve power for himself and his cronies. They want to maintain this wealth pump. God is going to let them do that in order to pay for the sins of the world. Caiaphas was motivated by selfish hatred to murder the Son of God, and the Father was motivated by selfless love for us to sacrifice his Son. The problem for the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, the, the, the Sadducees, was Jesus had been performing many supernatural signs, demonstrating his deity. And the crowds loved it. So the crowds left following the priests, who they were used to getting all the attention, and these huge crowds were now following Jesus. That's why next week we're going to find out that Pilate figured out that they had offered Jesus and wanted to kill him because they were jealous. Jesus' crowds were bigger than their crowds. And by the way, he was fearless in exposing their hypocrisy. He called them out. So they were afraid that if Jesus' crowds get big enough, he might precipitate a riot against Rome. And the Romans hated insurrection and unrest. And if that occurred, Rome would come in and crush that rebellion and even worse, remove them from their office. He would take the high priesthood away from them and give it to somebody else. 
Well, if they were replaced, guess what happened to their wealth pump? Gone. What happened to their religious control? Gone. So they had to kill Jesus in order to maintain their position of power and to maintain their position of wealth. And that's why Caiaphas recommended Jesus be killed, and everyone agreed with it. So what were the disciples doing when Jesus was arrested? Well, Matthew 26 said that at Jesus' arrest, every disciple abandoned him and fled, just as he had prophesied. Let's go to scene 2, verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Here's our principle. Staying close to Jesus enables us to resist the world's pressures. Staying close to Jesus enables us to resist the world's pressures. And what we know is all the disciples had fled, but two of them came back. Came back fairly quickly. Simon, Peter, and another disciple. Now, most commentators believe that the other disciple was John. John never referred to himself by name in his Gospels or his epistles. He always said, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or another disciple. So most people think this is probably John the Apostle. And John notes here that he had a relationship with the high priest. Now, most people find that rather interesting. The high priest was upper crust, and John was a fisherman in Galilee up north. But he wasn't a poor one. His father ran a very prosperous fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, he had hired help, and may have delivered fish to the high priest's family. Even more so, John was related to the priesthood through his mother's side. He was related to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. So there was some interconnection there. So it's very clearly he could have had a relationship with the high priest. What's important to know is that John actually went into the courtyard with Jesus. He went in with him. John stayed by Jesus' side. So we know that John was loyal, and his loyalty was obvious because he stayed close to Jesus inside the courtyard. Now, when they use this term, the court of a high priest, I want you to think about multiple, I want you to think about a compound. I want you to think of four, five, six large homes, and they share a common courtyard, a large common courtyard, right? The back of the house butts up to this courtyard. So you might have half a dozen houses and a very large common courtyard. All of the priests, the high priest family, Annas' family, lived in this compound. Annas did, Caiaphas, some other brothers and sisters probably as well. But they had this central courtyard. And Peter, it says, he followed the soldiers, Matthew 26 tells us, but he followed at a distance. He wasn't following close. And by the time they got to the gate, because it was all barred and gated and walled in, everybody had already gone inside. So Peter was stuck outside. And it says that John saw Peter outside, talked to the doorkeeper who happened to be a slave girl, and said, let him in, and brought Peter inside. And it was cold, and so Peter joined the officers and the slaves who were standing around this charcoal fire, which unfortunately, Peter made some choices directly in opposition to Psalm 1. What does Psalm 1 say? 
How blessed is the man who does what? Not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. So he was walking in the counsel of the wicked. He followed Jesus, but at a significant distance. He wanted to find out what happened, but he didn't want to get too close. And he went into the high priest's courtyard. He went into the courtyard, even though Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times. Then he stood by the sinners and the world at the fire, and Luke 22 tells us he finally sat down with the enemies of Jesus at the fire. He's not standing close to Jesus like John. He's trying to blend in with the world. He's trying to blend in with the crowd. And sometime during the evening, the servant girl, who happened to be the doorkeeper, said, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Peter was not expecting that. He was caught off guard. He's afraid. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. He's afraid if Jesus gets tried, he's going to get tried and executed. He tries to blend in with the crowd. The question invites a negative response, and he says, I am not. Curveball, strike one. Have you noticed that Satan never puts up a road sign that says, Temptation coming. (laughs) Be aware. He never does that. He always blindsides you. He ambushes you. And Peter just got ambushed by a slave girl. Now, this didn't surprise Jesus because he had been predicting Peter's denial on more than one occasion. Only hours before in the upper room, Jesus had warned Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, Simon. By the way, when your parents repeat your name like that, that's not good. And they say your name twice or three times. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Here's the principle. When we trust ourselves, we ignore God's word and we inevitably fail when we're tested. When we trust ourselves, we ignore God's word and we inevitably fail when we're tested. So Satan demanded permission to attack Peter's faith. And God gave it to him within limits, just like he did with Job. And Jesus used an interesting phrase. He said, he's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, sifting wheat is is really separating the wheat and the chaff, the grains and the chaff. And what that involved is it involved crushing the grain. You would scatter the grain, the wheat and the stalks, I mean the grains and the stalks that you'd cut on a very hard floor like this, probably even harder. And then you'd have oxen walk around in the circle on the top and their heavy hooves would crush the stalks and separate the grain uh, from the stalks. So Satan is trying to separate Jesus, Peter, from his loyalty to Jesus. Actually, Satan's trying to use fear to crush Peter's faith. Well, the truth of it is, Peter does have faith, but who's it in? It's in Peter. Peter says, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to prison. When does he say that? Right after Jesus said, Satan's after you, and he's going to attack you. And Peter goes, I got it, man. 
I can handle it, no problem. It didn't even terrify him, which it should have when Jesus said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and you're going to fall. That's pride. That's self-confidence. And what happens with self-confidence is you begin to disregard God's word. You begin to disregard God's warnings. You don't think they apply to you because somehow you're special. And he boasts, man, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Even earlier than that, Matthew 26, in the upper room, Jesus predicted, you will all, he's talking to all 12 disciples, you will all fall away me because of this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And Peter opens mouth, inserts foot and says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away, right? Peter is saying, Jesus, you're wrong. You said we're all going to fall away. Those other disciples, they're flakes. They probably will fall away. But you don't know me. I will never fall away. I know more than you, Jesus. He forgot that pride goes before a fall, and as a result, he fell flat in his faith had to get another bridge because he knocked all his teeth out. So Peter is asked a very innocent question. Uh, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he's not asked by an armed soldier. He's asked by an innocent teenage girl, and he collapses like a deck of cards and denies that he knows Jesus. Now, scene three, we're going to see the contrast between Peter's cowardice and Jesus' courage. Pick up the narrative in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them so that they know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here's our principle. Jesus was a courageous and faithful witness for God, even when wronged. Jesus was a courageous and faithful witness for God, even when wrong. I want you to understand this first hearing by Annas is highly illegal. It was illegal under Jewish law to compel an accused person to testify against themselves. Now, we, we believe that today. It's protected under the Bill of Rights, and we call that what? The Fifth Amendment. Taking the Fifth says, I have a right not to incriminate myself. Every person has that right. Self-confession is not sufficient evidence for a conviction. Annas needs to bring evidence and witnesses apart from Jesus to substantiate the charges they're making against him. Even more so, it was forbidden for the high priest to directly question the accused trying to trap him, and that was Annas was doing. And he said, well, why is that? Well, Annas is functioning as the judge in this case. The judge is supposed to be impartial, right? If the judge takes the role of a prosecuting attorney and you're in court, you're saying, I'm not getting a fair trial. The judge is clearly biased, right? I should have DA on this side, my defense attorney on this side, and the judge is supposed to be impartial. 
Annas is the judge in this case, and he's anything but impartial. He's not allowed to question Jesus directly as the judge. He does it anyway. Furthermore, it was illegal under Jewish law to conduct a trial at night. It's now about 1 a.m., obviously a violation. Also, according to Jewish law, you could not be sentenced on the same day as your trial. We're going to find out next week they violated that as well. So this trial of Jesus is illegal on multiple counts. And Annas asked Jesus about his disciples. He wants to find out how large a crowd was following Jesus because he's trying to make a political calculation and figure out there's going to be a riot in the morning. When the Jewish crowds figure out that Jesus has been arrested, are Jesus' disciples going to riot? Because if they do, he's in trouble with Rome. Now, Jesus doesn't even mention his disciples. He's protecting them, but he does comment on his teaching. And Annas really wants to know, Jesus, I know what you teach publicly, but are you teaching apostasy in private? Do you have another set of teachings? And Jesus says, look, I've been teaching in the temple where it's visible and public and transparent for three years. Everything I've said has been visible, talked about, argued about, you know it. You know what I talked about. You are not allowed to interrogate with me without calling witness. If you want witnesses about my teaching, there are thousands of people in this culture who have heard me speak. Call your witnesses. I deserve a fair trial. And there was a temple police officer there who knew that Jesus was rebuking the high priest. And it says he gave Jesus a blow to the face, probably with a club they carried. Micah 5.1 says, with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And Jesus' response to this hatred, this wrongdoing, with very calm confidence, a great deal of courage. In essence, he says, since I'm being indicted, and I deserve a fair trial under Jewish law, you need to produce legal witnesses. You need legal testimony. No trial's been conducted. No evidence has been produced. No verdict's been pronounced, and you are punishing me by striking me on the face with a club without proof of my guilt. He's calling for a fair trial. Obviously, Jesus knew that it was Father's plan that he die for the sins of the world, but he, he was real, depending completely on his Father. That's why he was a faithful witness. That's why he did not cower under this investigation, but he stood courageous. Now, it's clear when you read this that Annas is, is a vigilante. He wants Jesus dead, and we're going to find out next week, all the shenanigans they do to make sure that happens regardless of illegalities. Now, Annas gets nowhere with Jesus, so he sends him next door to his son-in-law Caiaphas' house. Let's take a look at scene four. So we've seen outside, we've seen inside, now we're going outside again with Simon Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Here's the principle. Prayer makes us aware of Satan's strategies and gives us God's power to overcome them. Prayer makes us aware of Satan's strategies and gives us God's power to overcome them. You know, when you read, the, all four Gospels mention Peter's denial. And when you read it, you're, you're, you're persuaded that it took place in five minutes. You know, one, two, three, they asked him and he denied it. That's not true. 
he encountered three sets of questions, probably in some cases offered by multiple people with time in between. Jesus was arrested around midnight, a little bit thereafter in the garden, taken to Caiaphas' or Annas' house. The, the two hearings between Annas and Caiaphas probably took two hours. So Peter's in the garden here, in the courtyard rather, by the fire for probably two hours from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. That's how long this is taking. And so his denials probably took place over a couple hour period. Now they're in Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet elevation. It's, it's at one o'clock in the morning, so it's cold. So they, they light a charcoal fire in the courtyard and Peter's trying to get warm with the rest of the officers and the slaves of the high priest. He's trying to blend in. He loves Jesus. He wants to find out what's going to happen. But he's also afraid of getting too close to Jesus because he doesn't want to be uh, potentially executed like Jesus is. So Peter is double-minded. Peter's like the person who's got one foot in the dock and one foot in the boat. What happens to those people? They don't get the dock and they don't get the boat. They fall in the water, right? That's what happens to Peter. So in the course of this small talk around the fire, someone stares at him. Another gospel says they looked intently at him, and they asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples. Now, he was blindsided the first time. Nevertheless, his fear causes him to deny knowing Jesus a second time. That's a knuckleball. Strike two. Interesting question. Why was Peter afraid? He just swore he was willing to die for Jesus, and now he's afraid. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. They come, and Jesus warns his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So Jesus, remember, goes a little bit away from them. He falls down. He prays to his father. He is so intent on praying in the agony so great, he's sweating great drops of blood, which is a medical situation. And what are his disciples doing? They're catching up on their Z's, right? They're tired. And they're sleeping. And Jesus comes back, and he wakes Peter up, and he says, So, Peter, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? In other words, you just promised me you'll die for me and you can't stay awake for an hour and pray with me over what is to come, my divine suffering. Because the disciples slept through Jesus' prayer meeting, they all fled when he was arrested. They were not prepared for the temptation of fear that Satan had prepped for him. Jesus knew that Satan was tempting Peter to trust in himself. And the solution for Peter's pride was humility and prayer. By the way, Satan has multiple strategies to attack the Christian. Multiple. And he knows you better than you know yourself. So if you think that you can resist Satan in your own strength, you've already fallen into pride. You've fallen into self-confidence. I can handle this. You can't handle it. Peter thought he could handle it, and he got blindsided, and it took him down. But God gave us multiple pieces of armor in Ephesians 6 to deal with the multiple strategies, the methods that Satan uses to tempt us to sin. And Satan was using the temptation of pride on Peter, and it worked fabulously well. 
If you go through Ephesians 6, after listing the full armor of God, Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6.18. He's got all six pieces listed. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Prayer gives us supernatural wisdom and supernatural strength from the Holy Spirit to use the spiritual armor he's already given us. Peter didn't pray for God's power. Peter didn't pray for God's protection because he didn't think he needed it. I can handle Satan on my own. And you look at that and you go, well, that is seriously stuck on stupid. But prayerlessness is stupid because prayerlessness says, I got it without the Holy Spirit's help. What you don't pray about, you're convinced you can handle. Right? I am embarrassed at how many things I fail to pray about. I'm amazed at how many things. Actually, getting out of bed this morning was a gift from God. Did I thank him I can get out of bed? Well, I usually go, oh, no, no, yeah, okay, all right. right." I do pray for, I do thank God for hot water. And I'm grateful for coffee because I need both, right? Peter overrated himself. That's prideful self-confidence. He underrated Satan. He discounted the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He failed to pray and he got bushwhacked. Jesus prayed. Jesus stood fast. The disciples slept and that's why they fled. And Peter folded up like a cheap suitcase. Sometime later, the same night, probably within an hour, one of the slaves of the high priest who happened to be a relative of Malchus. Now, who's Malchus? We met him last week. He's the guy who got his ear whacked off by Peter in the garden. So this relative was in the garden. He saw Peter try and kill his relative, and he says, I've seen you before, right? Matthew and Luke record that even more than that, it was Peter's Galilean accent. But by the way, the people up in Nazareth had a different accent. They might have talked Oki or something, but I don't know. But it was clearly, you could hear the difference where they were from, and Jesus was from Nazareth, which was in Galilee. And they said, you even talk like him, we know you're one of his. And Peter starts cursing and swearing, says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. What he's doing, he's calling down God's judgment on himself if he's not telling the truth. By the way, you hear people do that today. I swear on a stack of Bibles, blah, 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 blah. The bigger the oaths they swear, the bigger the lies they're telling. So if someone starts saying, I swear on a stack of Bibles, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know what's falling out of your mouth ain't true. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. Just tell the truth. So Luke 22 tells us that while Peter was still cursing and calling down curses and denying a rooster crowed. Fastball, strike three. At that very moment, Jesus, who's being led through the courtyard, the Gospels say, turned and looked directly at Peter. Have you thought about that? I wonder what the look was communicating... I'm sure Peter never forgot it, ever. We know it was a look of love and not judgment because Peter was restored. But at that moment, it says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told them before a rooster crows 
today, you will deny me three times. Here's what the backstory is. The fact that the rooster crowed exactly on schedule tells you that Jesus is sovereignly in control of every detail of this. Why, who could coordinate a rooster crowing at the moment Peter's speaking? Only God, right? However, just as Peter, Jesus had predicted Peter's failure, remember Jesus had also predicted in the next sentence his repentance and his restoration. Luke 22, 32, he's talking to Peter and he says, Peter, when once you have turned again, when once you have repented, when once you have come back, strengthen your brethren. It's interesting to compare Judas and Peter. Judas was filled with remorse after his betrayal. He went away and committed suicide, bungled it, but died. Peter was filled with repentance after his denial. He wept bitterly. Judas hated Peter. Judas hated Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Here's the absolute meta message here that is beyond wonderful. We serve a God of the second chance and the third chance and the 115th chance and the 852 chance. I'm somewhere north of 10,000 at this point. Three times Peter denied knowing Jesus. And we're going to find out in John 21 that Jesus gave him an opportunity to declare three times that he loved him. And so Jesus forgave him and restored him to ministry. And what a ministry it was. When you read the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters are all about the power of the Holy Spirit working through Peter to accomplish his divine purpose to call the Jewish nation to repentance and salvation. Here's what is paradoxical. Peter's future success as an apostle of Jesus was built on this failure. Because only when he stopped trusting himself and depended completely on Jesus did he fulfill God's plan for his life because the Holy Spirit could now work through him with power and Peter didn't take credit for it. So when you look back at your life, Failure is never final with Jesus Christ. But when you do fail and you do repent, he will forgive, he will restore, you will come back. What have you learned from that? Are we applying the lessons from our own failures in our life, surrendering them to the Lord and saying, Lord, teach me. Here's the problem. If you fail to learn the lesson the first go round, you get to repeat the lesson again and again. Because when the Holy Spirit wants to teach you something, he will bring the lesson back around and around. And you're saying, can we get off this record? I mean, I'd like to get another verse. Well, if you start obeying what he's teaching you, then you'll get the next lesson. Otherwise, he'll keep this one coming around and you can keep learning again. It took Peter's failing in himself in order to completely put his trust and his hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, which led to his future success. So whatever your failure, bring it to Jesus, repent from it. He will forgive you and he will restore you. We serve the God of great grace and great forgiveness. And it's illustrated in the life of Peter for our benefit. Let's go ahead and make a review. Principle number one, 
God allowed evil people to slay Jesus in order to accomplish his eternal plan to save people from their sin. When you read this account, all the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, he is sovereignly in control of every detail. This is not an accident. This is a divine achievement from eternity past. Number two, staying close to Jesus enables us to resist the world's pressures. And you and I are under pressure. Amen? The world wants to pressure us, put us in their mold. We can resist those pressures when we stay close to Jesus every day. Number three, when we trust in ourselves, we will ignore God's word and God's warnings, and we will inevitably fail when we're tested, and we will be tested. Number five, Jesus was a courageous and faithful witness for God even when wrong. He is our model. How do you respond to pressure? Look to Jesus. And lastly, prayer makes us aware of Satan's strategies and gives us God's power to overcome them. If we're praying on a regular basis, the Holy Spirit will prompt you. Watch out. Don't get blindsided with that. Watch out. Don't go there. He will protect us from that. But that means we need to make regular prayer with him moment by moment a priority and a discipline in our life. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.